Coming up on the Shelley Irwin Show podcast today, guest from the Federal Trade Commission talks about identity theft and how to stay safe. We look at the top Google searches of January. We talk to Basecamp coach Tim Kusick about the science behind movement. We talk about sustainability in the tech world with guests from Refreshed Tech. And Charlie Brown in a book as you've never seen him before. Well, here he comes. Formerly, here comes Charlie Brown, exclamation point, a Peanuts pop-up. Boy, I love pop-ups as a kid, and uh, I think I still love them. I know I love them as I look at your latest work. Here comes Charlie Brown. It is an innovative, palm-sized pop-up book. It's a love letter to, well, Schultz and Peanuts cartoonist and historian Gene Cannonberg Jr. does deconstruct that very first comic strip and, of course, does talk to us now. Mr. Cannonberg, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Shelley. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, I imagine uh, Charlie Brown has stuck with you since uh, you were a little guy. And uh, uh, wow, uh, obviously uh, Lucy and Linus and the whole rest of the bunch. But uh, here we are. Here comes Charlie Brown. What was your first adventure with Charlie Brown, Gene? It was probably the uh, probably the comic strip. Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we had something called the Green Sheet that had all of the comic strips and uh, mm-hmm humor columns and things like that. So I probably first discovered it in Green Sheet. And then my brother would always buy the uh, the Peanuts uh, uh, pocketbooks that were always in the Scholastic newsletter. So we were always reading those at lunchtime and uh, any other chance we got. So I just kind of memorized those uh, Peanuts books from as soon as we could read, basically. At this point, were you also thinking about being a cartoonist uh, uh, when you grew up? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I, I liked to draw a lot when I was a child, but uh, I, my brother was three years younger, and I kind of taught him how to draw. And uh, very quickly, he became a much better artist than I was. Uh, and so I kind of gave up drawing eventually, and I didn't start drawing again until about 10 years ago good that you have because now here comes Charlie Brown. What do we see? What's your intent, Gene? Uh, my intent was basically to uh, pay homage to one of my absolute artistic heroes, Charles Schultz. Uh, when I made this, I, I didn't set out to make this book. I made in what we call an artist book. Uh, I, I, I made a kind of a test run for this book uh, I just took the artwork from that very first Peanuts comic strip uh, and made a black and white version of this book using only Charles Schultz's line work. And what I wanted to do was just kind of dimensionalize it and not add anything whatsoever, except I had to draw the top of Shermie's head because the word balloon cuts off uh, the top of one of the character's heads. Mm-hmm. And because I made things into layers, I had to recreate the top of his head. But other than that, every line is the line that Charles Schultz drew. And I just wanted to show that even with a few simple lines, he was able to create this multidimensional world. And because the early comics, the the first 30 years plus of Peanuts is basically four equally sized panels, it really fit this format that I was using. Yes, doing the math. I know Charles Schultz did introduce us to good old Charlie Brown, October 2nd, 1950, a little before my time as well. Uh, again, that first Peanuts comic strip. Are you talking with this um, 
this latest Here Comes Charlie Brown basically to a whole new generation of fans as long as, as well as original um, longtime co- collectors, Gene? Uh, that's my hope. Uh, yeah, because uh, we've added color to it. Uh, I learned how to color with the dots that submit, so it looks kind of like a Sunday comic strip from uh, mid-century, uh, mid-20th century. Uh, the, the daily comics were never colorized, were never colored back then, so uh, I've kind of taken a little bit of liberty trying to choose colors that seem like they were appropriate for the time. Uh, so it uh, looks a little more attractive to today's uh, people who are used to color, but also it's kind of a throwback. That's why some of the colors are a little uh, imperfect because they wanted to have that kind of mechanical feel to it, that things aren't uh, 100% perfect. Uh, but uh, also I wanted to, to anybody who's familiar with the strip uh, would see it with new eyes also. Uh, but uh, again, mm-hmm. this kind of a huggable format, this palm size format, mm-hmm. uh, makes it a really kind of an interesting object to hold. So it's, uh, it's good for little hands, for big hands. Uh, and I really got to credit uh, the designer, Sean Dahl, who took what, because uh, basically the inside of the book is what I created. But the designer, Sean Dahl, really took things to a whole other level with having, because it has, it has three hardcovers, and uh, it's got two spines. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book, and I cannot take credit for how beautiful the outside of this book actually is. Well, it takes a team. Do we see any likes of Snoopy or Lucy or uh, his friends, or is it all Charlie? It's Charlie Brown and two characters who... Uh, disappear after a couple of decades. Uh, it's Shermie, who is the only character who talks in the strip, and Patty, who is not Peppermint Patty. Oh. These are two characters who uh, who show up, and they're pretty they're they're pretty uh, prevalent early on in the strip. Uh, it takes a long time for Schultz to really get down to the what we consider like classic Peanuts. Uh, there are lots of characters and the there are lots of characters who kind of show up at the beginning and kind of uh, peter out after a while. And the characterizations are a little different as well. Charlie Brown isn't the kind of a mopey, always put upon Charlie Brown that we meet at first. I mean, in this first strip, all he, he's only there in two panels, once very tiny, once very large. And then he disappears for the second two panels for the, for the last two panels completely. And, uh, uh, in some of the panels, he's a real stinker. I mean, in some of the mm-hmm. later comic strips, he's a real stinker. He gives as well as he gets in some of them. Uh, uh, Patty herself, uh, in the, I think it's the very next strip, gives Charlie Brown a black eye to show him to show that little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice, mm. and they can also give boys a black eye. Uh, so things really kind of are. He's really kind of finding his voice for a while. Nice. Here comes Charlie Brown, exclamation point. It's a Peanuts pop-up for the young and the young at heart. Tell me, Gene, how do we find out more information uh, to get the book? Uh, you can find out more information about the book and uh, and just kind of my other art as well at comicsmachine.com. Like Gene Gene the Dancing Machine, it's Gene Gene the Comics Machine. So cool. comicsmachine.com has all of that. Uh, it's available uh, at all of the major 
any, any major or minor uh, nice. booksellers, uh, Amazon, but your favorite local bookseller is, the be- is by far the best place to get it. Uh, AbramsBooks.com will have all the information on it, as well as links to all the major distributors and things as well. Great. Here comes Charlie Brown by you and yours, Gene Cannonberg Jr. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciated it. What have you been searching for when you Google of late, especially when it comes to January? We turn right to our Google search trends expert. That's you, Lindsay Weinberg, to talk about what's been, well, trending uh, on this start to this 2024. Good morning to you, Lindsay. Yeah, good morning to you. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, so the, for the month of January, we curated the top Google searches. Some topics we covered are award shows, beauty trends, cold weather, football, theories, and water bottles. Ooh, water bottles. Stand by for that. Well, let's take our time going through uh, what's been trending. First of all, I guess this is the overall question, Lindsay. Why, uh, why are you measuring what we search on a monthly basis? Yeah, we're measuring what we search um, day to day to see what's trending, what's hot, and to kind of predict what's going to be popular in the next few months. All right, so let's get into, uh, of course, what we all like to uh, uh, to do, be entertained. What wins when it comes to what did we search for? Yeah, so word shows were a big hit this month. Whenever we have an event like this, we always see breakout and top searches as people are trying to find out more about the celebrities and artists they love and follow. So for the Golden Globes, we saw Succession as the top trending show, and it actually took home four Golden Globes. And trust me, it's as good as people say it is because, in truth, I did binge the new season in two weeks. And for the Emmys, we have red carpet dresses as a top trending search. Specifically, we have Suki Waterhouse, who wore a beautiful red gown that created buzz for its apron-like design. What about uh, who was the goblin at the Emmys? This was a top trending who? Yeah, it was a top trending question, and it was found to be RuPaul's drag race contestant, Princess Poppy. Yes, and I want to back up half a step. Uh, There was actually a, uh, a question, what does original score mean when it comes to the Golden Globes, I see? Yeah, so original score, um, it actually means that um, a film score is original music written specifically to accompany a film. Moving on from entertainment, what about culture? What did we search for? Yeah, so for culture, I admittedly participated in most of the beauty trends that happened this month. So first and foremost, we have pre-shower makeup spiked 2,200%. And what is pre-shower makeup? More than doubled. So what this is, it's experimenting with new, different makeup techniques and colors right before you shower so you're able to wash it off soon after. It's a silly but real thing people are doing. Also, we see lip oils and lip stains are at an all-time high. And after the Elf lip gloss plug in the new Mean Girls movie, I definitely see this trend growing. Yes. What about collagen masks? Yes, so collagen masks are regular face masks that have collagen embedded into it. So it makes your overall appearance more plump, vibrant, and bright, and younger looking even. Well, you know, they say it uh, still is in. Tell me about what trended when it comes to hairstyles under culture. 
Yeah. So hairstyles, we see bobs are a huge um, hit. So it's the kitty cut, which is a bob with less structure and more volume. We have the page boy. It's a very short bob. And then three, four, and five, our middle part, French crop, and invisible walk. All right. Moving on to science. What was the top trend here? Yeah. So with the temperatures dropping, we're seeing spikes in search interest for extreme cold weather. So with tomorrow a snow day spiked over 1,300%, and I think my younger self is 99% of those searches, mm. an acute breakout search was how to keep dogs' feet warm in snow. That's my kind of person, that's for sure. There is also a breakout search when it comes to how to turn on weather alerts. Tell me about this. Yeah, so how to turn on weather alerts is a breakout search, and you can actually do it on maps. Again, always learning. Top trending questions staying on this topic of science on polar vortexes. Uh, what'd you find here? Yeah, so for polar vortexes, how long does a polar verte vertex last? What is the polar vertex doing right now? And what is the polar vertex actually have been trending? All right, there we are, talking all things Google trending for the month of January. Lindsay Weinberg with us as a Google search trends experts expert. We've got to talk odd news. I want to start with uh, airplanes. Yeah, so airplanes, uh, searches are focusing on safety this month. So how safe is flying right now is trending. And then also, what is the door plug on? So it actually seals an unused exit. Again, uh, taking that right from, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, our news. Safest seats on a plane. How much did that increase by? So on a plane, I actually don't have that information right now, but you can go on google.com slash trends to find what you're looking for. Right. I have safest seats on a plane increased by over 100%, so that is pretty cool. What about um, most searched how often do planes dot, dot, dot? What did you find here? Yeah, so how often do planes... Um, yeah, how often do they get service, delayed, and more here? Yes. Um, so we are seeing um, how often do planes crash? Not often. How often do planes get heavy checks? That's six to ten years. And then also how often do planes crash into each other? And that data is not um, reported. All right. Take me to theories. What do you have here? So for theories, the top search for Michigan is actually the orange peel theory. Oh. So what this means is you ask your and other to peel an orange for you. And if they are willing, it means that they're prepared to make sacrifices to prioritize your happiness. So we're all hoping to find that someone. Cool. All right. Take me to sports. Yeah. So now we're back to sports. And football has once again taken over the search trends for many reasons. We're seeing that for the national championship, who won the national championship is a top, is a top trending question, which Miss Michigan took the W home. And then search interest in the Michigan Wolverines football is currently at a record high. As it should be. All right, I have to ask, staying on the topic of, of Michigan, because we, we most likely know this, the top trending lyric search would be? Yes, the top um, lyric search is... Um, Hail to the victors. I'll even answer that. How's that? Yeah. Yes. Happy singing in the morning. 
Bring me down. We've got about a minute and a half left. Bring me down to NFL divisional round. What trended here? Yeah, so for the NFL division round, we see top search players are Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes, both playing for the Kansas City Chiefs. And in regard to the Super Bowl, we have the Niners versus Chiefs in the finals. So we're seeing so much search interest for the Super Bowl already, but we'll be back after the game to report about it. Talking to you in February. All right, let's end with food and that topic of water bottles. So everyone and their mothers are obsessed with Stanley Cups. We see that the Stanley Cup craze is up 2,600%. I actually do not own a Stanley Cup myself, but I'm crossing my fingers. I get a pink one for Valentine's Day. And then why is Stanley Cup trending is also a search question. And Stanley was the first insulated cup that took into account car cup holders into their design. I'm seeing top water bottles that... uh fit in a cup holder, are easy to clean, and more. So it's kind of cool. How do you want us to use uh, what you find that has trended uh, in closing, Lindsay? Yes, so thank you so much for having me. And if you want to discover more search trends, go to google.com slash trends. All right. How do you want us to use this? Uh, I mean, I, is it for fun, or do you actually do measurements? Yes, so we do measurements by percentage of um, the previous month to this current month. But it also is fun to go on the website and explore what's trending, maybe follow suit, um, maybe talk to your friends and family about what's trending. It's all fun and games, but it does come down to measurements. Yep, and we learn who invented the airplane. That's where we'll end. Lindsay Weinberg, Google Search Trends expert. Thank you very much for uh, talking about January. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about the science of training. Yes, many athletes of all talents start goal setting early in the year. This often called the off season. What's it take to do your best at the start line? Let's talk about the topic of of this, of base camp, of coaching, and of course of of, uh, doing your best in any situation. So I bring you on. I'll call you Coach Tim. Coach Tim Cusick uh, calling uh, from our great state of Pennsylvania. But of course, uh, uh, I know you have uh, uh, Michigan ties as well. So Tim, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you today? And fun, I say Michigan ties. Uh, I'm sure you've coached a few uh, Michiganders in your life. Absolutely. We're pretty popular in Michigan, it seems like. Well, we have great athletes uh, in, uh, in our state as well, all four seasons long. Let me ask a very basic question as we dig into the weeds here. Ultimately, uh, who is Coach Kusick? Who are you, Tim? Um. Well, yes, my name is Tim Cusick. I'm the head coach here at Base Camp Endurance Coaching. A um, little bit of background, I've been coaching for over 20 years. I've had the, the privilege of coaching at a very high level and have worked with athletes, led athletes to numerous national and world championships and to the Olympics. So, wow. you know, as a coach, I, I've been privileged to really have some of the, the best and highest level experience out there. Um, I also have a background in data analytics, um, and it's kind of one of my areas of specialties. I'm also the Training Peaks WKO product leader, so I do a lot of work in big data, data analytics, science and data in endurance training and coaching. 
So you're okay with uh, uh, what I found on YouTube, uh, uh, hosting a nerd cast every now and then. <laughs> I am the king of nerd cast. It's like uh, I have a, a background in especially in analytics and math, which doesn't always make me the most exciting person at the party. But uh, if you're going to Vegas, you might want to take me. That's pretty much how it goes. There you are. But if you're an athlete, uh, how important is a coach? Wow. Um, for anybody to improve in any sport, you know, any athlete, really coaching is key. And there's different ways that, you know, we can access and find that coaching. The biggest barrier as a self-coached athlete is we're not as, as, as objective with ourselves. Even when we try really hard, we tend to have a lot of self-bias which can be uh, a pretty big barrier to improving performance through self-coaching. Thank you for that. A couple more one-on-ones. Tell me more about Basecamp. Um, Basecamp is a community-based coaching um, collective approach. We have a unique approach towards coaching. Um, a little bit of a background in my 20 years of coaching at a very high level, um, I really saw how solo the sport was. And I noticed that there was this very linear um, uh, relationship between success athletes and athletes who had a very high level of intrinsic motivation. They were very internally motivated. They were very good in their own space. They were good at being sort of lonely, getting out on the bike and riding two, four, five, six hours and just being in their own headspace. But I also saw that that was pretty unique, that a lot of us, including myself, are not really wired that way. And as our coaching company matured and my approach towards coaching uh, split between the elite athlete and people like myself, more of the everyday athlete, we saw that there really was a need for something different, that we can improve this idea of coaching by moving away from just the one-on-one -on -one relationship, you have a coach and then you have an athlete and everything's happening between them. And then you send the athlete out into this kind of solo individual world that we could bring in this concept of community and kind of lean into the idea that we have a lot of similar people out there training. And if we can redesign I don't want to say reinvent because you're really just talking about a different approach and evolution, but if we could evolve coaching into being less solo, uh, more community, more shared experience, we could actually improve the results of everyday athletes. And that really is the basic, uh, the basis of base camp endurance coaching and our base camp group coaching programs, whether you're group coaching or one-on-one -on -one coaching is we lean into this idea of community. A cyclist who cycles together stays together or something as such. Tim, uh, tell me about this science of training. Well, science, the science of training, right? It's funny, you can't separate it from coaching. So kind of the way we always say it is you have to look at the art of coaching and the science of training. Because and I do a lot of nerd casts, as you say, and I do a lot yeah. of educational programs for coaches and stuff like that. Science actually doesn't have all the answers. 
And I know it's like, wow, here's a coach that's on the cutting edge of data and, and is leading in the science room, stuff like that. And his first response is science doesn't have the answers. Science helps us make better decisions. Data helps us make better decisions. Science guides and you know gives us the insight of implementing good principles and, and good process. But at the end of the day, the art of coaching is important. So understanding both is key. So if you start with the science, really, we know the science. We, we've been blessed, like right now as coaches, we are really, in the last 20 years, the science, really the last 30 years, the, the science of exercise physiology has progressed well. The ability, you know, we have data out there. We have so many wearable products and measurements and quantification of training and training load. The science really has benefited. So it's out there and it's accessible to us. There are principles of exercise that we know are the way the human body responds. And we have principles like progression and specificity and overload. And those are all tools that, you know, a good coach should understand and be able to apply. Um, the application of those, you know, that science, these principles and how things work, that really is in the design of training. So when I sit down and I start thinking about, wow, an athlete has a goal, they're trying, and we think about what all training is, right? You're starting somewhere sort of down here, and you're about to embark on a journey to being improved, faster, stronger, better. You know, you're getting from point A to point B in less time. That's the nature of what we're doing. Training is that journey. It's like, well, the training plan is the map right? But it doesn't keep you moving through the journey. That really more than is the art of coaching. So the map has to be science-based. It's got to follow these principles. It's got to be based on, you know, an understanding of how the human responds to training and how it doesn't actually, and the application of that. But then that has to apply to the art side of it. And here's how I like to give the example. It's like making music. Science gives us really good notes. Like each note, we've so fine-tuned our understanding of exercise physiology. Not that there isn't plenty of things we don't understand, but we have enough knowledge. We have enough notes that we can play these individual notes. The challenge is, the art of coaching is, can we put those notes in the right order that we make music? Can we manage all those mm -hmm. notes that are in our in our music catalog, right? So that if we put them in the right order, it's like, oh, there's symphony, right? There, there is that amazing song that you want to hear. That's the art of coaching meets the science of training, right? Science gives us the notes. Coaching puts them in the right order and makes music. Thanks for your passion, Tim Cusick, with us. Uh, a coach, base camp coach, and more, of course, talking science and uh, other nerd casts. Again, these are available to, uh, to we who want to uh, study the science and learn from you. Yeah, we do for, you know, our community-based approach and stuff like that is very based on learning. Uh, one of my principles of, of being a great athlete is being a knowledgeable athlete. So we make a tremendous amount of learning available to all our athletes and our followers so that you can have the knowledge to improve your own training and work better with the coach. Yes. 
What else would you like to share, Tim? Uh, obviously, uh, uh, get involved in uh, uh, a base camp program, uh, get involved with the coach, and uh, uh, off-season uh, uh, treat it seriously? Yeah, you know, well, uh, off-season is super important. You know, just, it's funny, um, you know, we are now in, in February, and, and, and people are, are really kind of gearing up. Spring's right around the corner. We all have events and stuff like that. You know, unfortunately, a lot of times people who don't rest in the off season are already starting to feel some kind of accumulated fatigue and other stuff now. So I think rest in the off season is very important. So it's kind of funny you said that. Um, as far as other things, I mean, in general, uh, you know, this is we think about where your training is at right now for a year. This is a very transitionary phase. We tend most of us to use classic languaging where we're kind of beginning to wrap up our base or our foundation training and getting ready to move more towards competition and build more fitness. And, you know, I think these are, uh, it's always an exciting transition. I know right now uh, I've been on the trainer for a while and I start looking out my window more and more and ready mm. to go outside and ride for real. Um, so I really think we're in that transitionary phase, you know, in the next couple of weeks, it really starts hitting and we're going to keep moving forward. Great. Tim, uh, how do we find out about your work? You can always come visit us at www.joinbasecamp.com. It really is that simple. There's plenty of information and resources on the site. Uh, feel free to come on over. Uh, you do have to kind of join up to the site to see the free blogs and stuff like that. But once you're in, you can see a lot of the communication that we share. The education and the learning is all on there. Membership has its privileges. Thanks. Good training to you, Tim. Appreciate the inspiration. And uh, uh, stop by when you're in the Michigan land. Take care. Thanks for having me. like to put the spotlight on our Grand Rapidians doing good and, well, uh, making national choices. Refreshed Tech recently hired former eBay and StockX refurbished development lead Josh Verholst. Yes, you know that name, Verholst, from Grand Rapids, joining the team as a partner and chief growth officer. So I'm going to pick your uh, brain, Josh, if I may, on uh, all things uh, sustainability, technology, and, of course, uh, anyone who transitions. It's always nice to know is, you know, is there life after Grand Rapids? Good morning to you, Josh. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you. And I know your backdrop is uh, Fort Wayne, hopping a skip uh, from our good area. Remind me of your roots, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, just on, north, on the northwest side there. And remind me of your background. Yeah, um, professionally, background is in uh, kind of the secondary market for consumer electronics. I worked with a startup there in Grand Rapids a few years back and, and have since gone on this journey of uh, refurbishment and sustainability in the consumer electronics world, uh, transitioning into a couple different marketplace businesses and now back uh, into the startup world here in northern Indiana, uh, trying to scale and grow a reuse company uh, focused on re-commerce of consumer electronics. You got to take that apart for sure. Is Refresh Tech, uh, a, a, I mean, a national firm? Are you touching lives uh, nationally? Yes. Yep. Globally at this point. So we do. Uh, we, we take in a lot of end of life equipment here in the states, um, and then we sold into nearly thirty countries this last year. Hmm. 
All right. So re- refresh tech is literally what it means. So so how does it work? You take in uh, equipment and refurbish, expand. Yes. Yep, that's correct. Yeah, we work with a lot of K-12 institutions uh, and enterprise businesses directly as well. And then we have some other large-scale partnerships in the carrier space. Um, but bringing in end-of-life technology, uh, customer trade-ins, in some cases it's just surplus inventory, um, fully testing, data wiping that equipment so it can be redeployed. And then if and when it makes sense, we'll do some light-touch refurbishment on the equipment as well just to make sure it's in, in good shape for the end consumer. Yeah, probably 40, maybe 50 years ago, all we were concerned about is where am I going to put uh, uh, my old TV or, uh, you know, Walkman. But now, uh, obviously, uh, uh, the recycling and uh, certainly um, uh, the new additions coming out so quickly. So what is your role as a chief growth officer for the team? Yeah, so initially, I'm going to over oversee all revenue functions of the business. So we have our procurement team, our, our wholesale sales division, and then also an e-commerce team that is selling D2C. So initially taking those on and uh, really just helping make sure that we're maximizing revenue in all those areas and then um, try to un- uncover some new partnerships for us as we continue to expand. Yes. And uh, what what be your answer if I ask you to talk a bit more about uh, uh, sustainable technology in these times? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge, um, it's a huge opportunity, especially just with macroeconomic conditions as well. But um, ensuring that we extend the life of technology is a huge priority for us as a company. Um, And again, as we see some of these more macroeconomic pressures, uh, I think end consumers are becoming more savvy and more open open to purchasing refurbished. Uh, so you look at something like an iPhone 15 that's 1500 bucks MSRP, uh, that becomes less and less attractive uh, to end consumers, especially as times tighten up a little bit. Um, and we have opportunities at Refresh Tech where we're selling, you know, second, third generation old phones for four, five, six hundred dollars, right? So it's just a much more affordable option. Uh, for consumers. And then, again, extending the life cycle of that equipment really helps ensure that it's not going into, you know, landfills or, or other areas that might harm the environment. Yes, Jeff Johnson Burholst with us, Refresh Tech, as new employer, partner, chief growth officer based in Indiana, Fort Wayne. Tell me more about the move from Michigan to Indiana. It's just, you know, it's a human a human story because I know you and your, your family uh, well based in Grand Rapids. What is, what's it like to take your family for a risk? I know you've got perhaps some personal ties. Oh, yeah. Yeah, big transition. Big transition for our family. I think probably the biggest for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, because born, born and raised in, in West northwest uh, Grand Rapids and uh, as many know, my family is very tight, so it was a it was a big transition, um, but we are embracing it and, and learning along the way. So was able to learn quite a bit um, from my time in Grand Rapids, and I'm I'm pretty confident we'll make our way back there at some point. There we go. We know you're young, and we know all about the boomerang effect. But uh, Fort Wayne's certainly lucky to have you, and uh, yes, name strong in our own backyard. What do you miss bo- most about West Michigan as we speak? Besides mom and dad. I was going to say, that's right at the top, family. Um, miss living a, about a mile in any which direction Ooh. from uh, my parents and my siblings. 
Um, but it's, uh, I mean, I definitely miss the community component as well. Um, it's a very tight-knit community. The short drives is always about a five- or seven-minute drive for me on the northwest side to pretty much get to anything. Uh, Fort Wayne's a little bit more spread out, so that was an adjustment. Um, but Fort Wayne, in, in many ways, is, is is trying to be more like Grand Rapids, I think. If you look at the economic development happening downtown and some of the things they've done, they're definitely making it a, a more attractive place for folks to come and live, and it's, it's very affordable. Um, but I would say most of all, it's probably just the proximity within everything and, uh, again, kind of the restaurant scene. And my wife and I are both foodies, so we, we really love that experience, too. Bring uh, some of that a bit to Fort Wayne, but uh, uh, don't, uh, don't forget your, your roots, as they say. Refresh Tech. You, uh, of course, now involved uh, and um, uh, interested and you care about sustainable technology. So thank you for furthering your career. Josh Verholst, how do we find out more information? Yeah, go to refreshtech.com. Check out our website. I can also be reached at josh at refreshtech.com. Happy to answer any inquiries uh, and uh, business opportunities. All right, go get them. Thanks to you, and uh, take care uh, with your next adventure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here he comes. Formally, here comes Charlie Brown, exclamation point. A Peanuts pop-up. Boy, I love pop-ups as a kid, and uh, I think I still love them. I know I love them as I look at your latest work. Here comes Charlie Brown. It is an innovative palm-sized pop-up book. It's a love letter to, well, Schultz and Peanuts. Cartoonist and historian Gene Cannonberg Jr. does deconstruct that very first comic strip and, of course, does talk to us now. Mr. Cannonberg, good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Shelley. Thanks for having me. You are quite welcome. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, I imagine uh, Charlie Brown has stuck with you since uh, you were a little guy. And uh, uh, wow, uh, obviously uh, Lucy and Linus and the whole rest of the bunch. But uh, here we are. Here comes Charlie Brown. What was your first adventure with Charlie Brown, Gene? It was probably the uh, probably the comic strip. Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We had something called the Green Sheet that had all of the comic strips and uh, mm-hmm humor columns and things like that. So I probably first discovered it in Green Sheet. And then my brother would always buy the uh, the Peanuts uh, uh, pocketbooks that were always in the Scholastic newsletter. So we were always reading those at lunchtime and uh, any other chance we got. So I just kind of memorized those uh, Peanuts books from as soon as we could read, basically. At this point, were you also thinking about being a cartoonist uh, uh, when you grew up? Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I, I like to draw a lot when I was a child, but uh, I, my brother was three years younger, and I kind of taught him how to draw. And uh, very quickly, he became a much better artist than I was. Uh, and so I kind of gave up drawing eventually, and I didn't start drawing again until about 10 years ago. Good that you have, because now here comes Charlie Brown. What do we see? What's your intent, Gene? Uh, my intent was basically to uh, pay homage to one of my absolute artistic heroes, Charles Schultz. Uh, when I made this, I, I didn't set out to make this book. I made in what, what we call an artist book. Uh, I, I, I made a kind of a test run for this book. Uh, I just took the artwork from that very first Peanuts comic strip, uh, 
uh, and made a black and white version of this book using only Charles Schultz's line work. And what I wanted to do was just kind of dimensionalize it and not add anything whatsoever, except I had to draw the top of Shermie's head because the word balloon cuts off uh, the top of one of the characters' heads. Mm. And because I made things into layers, I had to recreate the top of his head. But other than that, every line is the line that Charles Schultz drew. And I just wanted to show that even with a few simple lines, he was able to create this multidimensional world. And because the early comics, the, the first 30 years plus of Peanuts is basically four equally sized panels, it really fit this format that I was using. Yes, doing the math. I know Charles Schultz did introduce us to good old Charlie Brown, October 2nd, 1950, a little before my time as well. Uh, again, that first Peanuts comic strip. Are you talking with this um, this latest Here Comes Charlie Brown basically to a whole new generation of fans as long as, as well as original um, longtime co- collectors, Gene? Uh, that's my hope. Uh, yeah, because uh, we've added color to it. Uh, I learned how to color with the dots, that so it looks kind of like a Sunday comic strip from uh, mid-century, uh, mid-20th century. Uh, the, the daily comics were never colorized, were never colored back then, so uh, I've kind of taken a little bit of liberty trying to choose colors that seem like they were appropriate for the time, uh, so it uh, looks a little more attractive to today's uh, people who are used to color, but also it's kind of a throwback. That's why some of the colors are a little uh, imperfect because they wanted to have that kind of mechanical feel to it, that things aren't uh, 100% perfect. Uh, but uh, also I wanted to anybody who's familiar with the strip uh, would see it with new eyes also. Uh, but uh, again, mm-hmm. this kind of a huggable format, this palm-sized format, mm-hmm. uh, makes it a really kind of an interesting object to hold. So it's, a, it's good for little hands, for big hands. Uh, and I really got to credit uh, the designer, Sean Dahl, who took what, because uh, basically the inside of the book is what I created, but the designer, Sean Dahl, really took things to a whole other level with having, because it has, it has three hardcovers, and uh, it's got two spines. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. And I cannot take credit for how beautiful the outside of this book actually is. Well, it takes a team. Do we see any likes of Snoopy or Lucy or uh, his friends, or is it all Charlie? It's Charlie Brown and two characters who uh, disappear after a couple of decades. Uh, it's Shermie, <laughs> who is the only character who talks in the strip, and... Patty, who is not Peppermint Patty. Oh. These are two characters who uh, who show up, and they're pretty they're they're pretty uh, prevalent early on in the strip. Uh, it takes a long time for Schultz to really get down to the what we consider like classic Peanuts. Uh, there are lots of characters, and uh, there are lots of characters who kind of show up at the beginning and kind of uh, peter out after a while, and the characterizations are a little different as well. Charlie Brown isn't the kind of a mopey, always put upon Charlie Brown that we meet at first. I mean, in this first strip, all he, he's only there in two panels, once very tiny, once very large, and then he disappears for the second two panels, for the, for the last two panels completely. And uh, 
in some of the panels, he's a real stinker. I mean, in some of the mm-hmm. later comic strips, he's a real stinker. He gives as well as he gets in some of them. Uh, uh, Patty herself, uh, in the, I think it's the very next strip, gives Charlie Brown a black eye to show him to show that little girls are sugar and spice and everything nice, mm. and they can also give boys a black eye. Uh, so things really kind of are. He's really kind of finding his voice for a while. Nice. Here comes Charlie Brown, exclamation point. It's a Peanuts pop-up for the young and the young at heart. Tell me, Gene, how do we find out more information uh, to get the book? Uh, you can find out more information about the book and uh, and just kind of my other art as well at comicsmachine.com. Like Gene Gene the Dancing Machine is Gene Gene the Comics Machine. So cool. comicsmachine.com has all of that. Uh, it's available uh, at all of the major, any, any major or minor uh, nice. booksellers, uh, Amazon, but your favorite local bookseller is, the be- is by far the best place to get it. Uh, Abramsbooks.com will have all the information on it, as well as links to all the major distributors and things as well. Great. Here comes Charlie Brown by you and yours, Gene Cannonberg Jr. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I appreciated it.